Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is Joshua Hale-Fialkov. Josh, welcome to the show. Why, thank you for having me. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, so I've been uh, writing for, this is my 20th year writing professionally. Um, I started as a comic book writer. Uh, like I think my first comic I published was in 2001, 2002. Um, and I worked in comics. I did online, uh, I did online comics first. Um, and then I started publishing. I did a book called uh, The Western Tales of Terror, which I believe you did a short story in, if I'm not mistaken. Way well, back very when. possibly. It's hard to it's remember so that long. far back. <laughs> it's been so long. Um, and then uh, from there, I did a book called Elk's Run that I self-published that was eventually bought by Random House. And from there, I did a bunch of other graphic novels. I eventually worked uh, at Marvel and DC for a few years. Um, and then I transitioned over and I've been working predominantly in TV for the past six years now. Um, but I also I've worked in video games. I've worked in uh, Internet, like Internet video. Um, God, what haven't I worked in? I've done radio. <laughs> I've really done everything. Oh, I didn't know you'd done radio. Wow. I did. I did radio when I was a teenager, oddly. Um, like I had a I had a morning show. It's very strange. It's a very strange story. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I've I've done virtually every kind of writing. I was a journalist for a little bit. Um yeah, and I pretty much I love I love writing. Like it's the only thing I'm any actual good at, thank God. Because otherwise <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'd be doing. Well, when did you realize that? Like what prompted you to think okay i'm gonna be a writer and then you actually act upon it to make that a reality i mean since i was a kid i knew like when you know i think everybody everybody has like the tape recorder that they got everybody my age has you know the tape mm -hmm. recorder that their parents got them when they were little and um mine you know my parents got me a little play school like the handle built in and I would come home from school every day from the time I was in kindergarten and I had an hour long programming block and it was like serialized shows. And every afternoon I had a show that ran at four o'clock, a show that ran at 410, another 420, 430, 440, 450. And then, you know, the five o'clock big show, I did commercials in between them and like I did it meticulously like it was every wow. single day they were continuing stories there was a talk show there was a comedy show there was a drama um i did not understand that if you just flip the tape over and over it's just recording over itself so there's in <laughs> fact no no evidence but my my own word <laughs> that's the thing that exists um right but who would make a story like that up <laughs> it's very strange yeah it's like a super weird i mean one of the like the one of the comedy show was a lot of me flushing things down the toilet um, which my mom's wedding ring was one of those things. So, you know, like oh, no. th yeah, things happen, you know, mistakes were made. Um, but like even, you know, even as a little kid, um, I used to have these like just vivid nightmares, but my nightmares were serialized. So I would literally wake up to cliffhangers and I hated going to sleep because this, the second I, my head hit the pillow, I knew that it was going to pick up again. And so I would like literally, <laughs> literally have these like month long, like epic arc nightmares. Wow. Um, 
which like I I still don't sleep like I still sleep very very badly and I think that's part of it is left over from from being a kid and having that that weird problem um so yeah it's it's always been something I did I mean I went to you know for college I went to theater school and I like purposefully uh purposely went to the school I went to because I could get a BFA in writing and directing and acting um and study film and like get to kind of you know get a fine arts degree but also do a little bit of everything that I wanted to do um and and again like I even as an even as an actor like I never I would be in shows and I would always look at things not from an actor's point of view but from the writer's point of view mm. um because it was just it was more important to me um you know like i i came into i came into i mean i'll never forget sitting in like you know freshman freshman dramatic lit in college and you know we'd be reading plays that i like i specifically remember reading a doll's house you know and and if you're in the theater and you haven't read a doll's house what the hell are you <laughs> not why are you in the theater like what are you doing like how have you not read you know or reading you know or reading romeo and juliet or reading at like any shakespeare or chekhov or any of that stuff and like i didn't understand that other people hadn't experienced that like they just wanted to act because it was a thing they were good at or they were in musicals in high school or they had you know been in plays or wanted to be in commercials like for me it was like no no, no these, are, these are these are great pieces of literature and we can give them life in a way that nobody else can like that's why we're here um and the fact that I was more interested in that than the like, yeah, yeah, feel stuff. Who cares? I don't care. Just get the words right. Who cares? <laughs> I don't need your emotions. I just need people to say the words as they're written, please. Thank you. Uh, that, I was, uh, I did uh, a bit of acting, not nowhere near as formal as you. I didn't go to college for it or anything, but I did it quite a bit when I was in high school. Uh, and I did consider going to college for it, but you know, never did in the end. Um, and uh, yeah, I, same thing ha- happened here. I, I realized that I was more interested in the stories and I did write a play for our, we had, um, we had one of those very English schools that was divided up into, uh, houses, uh, you know, very Harry Potter. And, Mm -hmm. uh, we had a music festival, a drama festival and a sports day every year where the houses competed against one another. Not all at once. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's horrible when you're doing a play and someone keeps kicking a football (laughs) at your head. It's so hard to deal with. Um, but I, I wrote, uh, twice, actually, I think I wrote plays for the drama festival and one, one year as well, actually. Um, mm. and yeah, I was, it was clear at that point that I was much more interested in the writing side of it, as you say, than the acting side, but having that training, I think has stood me in good stead. I say training, I like to say it wasn't very formal. Um, but having that experience has stood me in good stead as a storyteller, I think. Oh no. Uh, look, I mean, sitting on, on sets now, you know, as a, as a producer, like when you, when you can talk to actors and understand that they're not just being obnoxious. Cause I think a lot of, <laughs> no, it's look, it's a conversation that happens in writer's rooms is yeah, yeah. Well, this person's a problem. Um, there's an actor, I mean, this is, well, it's a short story, but there was, there's an actor who is sort of famous for not being able to remember dialogue, uh, who's on one of the shows I worked on. And, you know, the, the showrunners and the other writers who had gone to produce before me, like they were all just kvetching about this guy that he just, he's, you know, they can't get, they can't get a goddamn, you know, two sentences out of him before he has to ask for line. And, you know, what I, I was like, I was outright offended, (laughs) you know, and I said, look, like, have you guys actually talked to him? 
well, you know, we shouldn't have to. He should just do his job. I'm like, right. But if he spent his whole life essentially being treated like he can't do the job and being catered to because he doesn't have to do the job because everyone just assumes he can't like, well, what do you think he's going to do? And everyone sort of like, you know, told me that I was a schmuck for, <laughs> for expecting that. <laughs> and so being the spiteful bastard that I am, I wrote him a monologue and I got the monologue approved. I like made a point of like going to the showrunners and saying, this is the, this is going to be in the script. Like this is the monologue. Let's get this done first so that he can have it early. And we got it done early. We got it to him. You know, it was like we had a conversation about this is the motivation of it. This is what the scene is about. This is what it's going to be. And I want it done in a take. Like this is a one take monologue. Wow. And everybody else was like, well, that's just not going to happen. And I said, well, how do you know? Well, because, you know, he's definitely going to fail. I'm like, right. If you go into this expecting him to fail, he's going to fail. Like that is just the nature of it. Like that is how this works. An actor knows what they knows what is going on around them. Like it's literally their primary job. You know, it's not saying words. It's actually being aware of the words that are happening around them and the feelings that are happening around them. And, you know, literally my proudest, one of my proudest accomplishments in TV is that he did it. Like he didn't just do it once. He did it three times in one take word. Perfect. Every time. Nice. And it's because we, Number one, we gave him material with enough time for him to learn it, which is rare in TV, just in general. Um, we gave him material that was catered to him, and we let him know that we trust him. Like, we staged it in a way that showed faith. And those are things that I absolutely learned by being an actor, that I think just being a writer and being a or being a director, like, I don't know. Directors, to some degree, know it. But I think even then, directors are so especially in TV that you're so geared towards like, I got, I got this many pages to get done today. I don't have time to think about anything, but you saying the words and moving on. Like yeah. the actors are supposed to know the characters. The actors are supposed to know the, the pattern, and the, the speed, the director is supposed to get the camera where it needs to be, get the takes they need, get the coverage they need and move on. So actually getting them where they need to go is, is a job that's sort of put on their shoulders, but it's our responsibility as writers to make their lives easier. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, while you were at college, was that when, uh, you decided, you, well, you said that you realized you had more of an interest in the writing side. How did you go about starting to, you know, get stuff published? Did you immediately gravitate towards comics or did you try other fields first? So I, I've had a couple, I also did a couple of plays that I, you know, either, either like self-financed or got into, you know, like competition-y things. Um, and then in like the weirdest, it's a very long, weird story, but I sold a pilot with a, I had an old writing, I had a writing partner back then. Um, and we sold a pilot and we found out about it on the day of graduation. <laughs> it was very, it was very, uh, it was very nice. 80s movie of us to, <laughs> to happen. Um, and so we, uh, we just had, it was a, this was, you know, this was two, like the year 2000. Um, and back then there was this big movement because sort of the the real like Sopranos led golden age of television was really just kind of starting to get going. And there was this big movement where people were doing uh, backdoor backdoor pilots. They were making independent features that would serve as pilots in success. 
and we got put in touch with this producer who it was his, you know, his uh, company was essentially making that transition from doing documentaries and doing films to doing this model. And, um, you know, he read the pilot that we wrote, he loved it. And he, you know, essentially said, let's get to work, let's start making it. So we spent the next, you know, following year or so working on it while uh, my writing partner and I both stayed in Boston and I worked in a movie theater and he, I can't remember where he worked. He worked somewhere. I think he worked somewhere. He better have worked somewhere. <laughs> um, and, you know, finally we got a phone call, you know, at the end of the next summer saying it's time to, it's time to pack up and, and go like, let's get to LA so we can start doing, you know, casting and scheduling and let's, we're going to shoot this thing. And uh, we left Boston on September 9th, 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah, not great. Um, and by the time we got here, it turns out that a pilot about, you know, a bunch of um, about a guy who was a Vietnam vet who was declared uh, killed in action, but was in fact a POW for an extra 10 years who comes back to find that the government has completely ignored him and forgotten about him and his whole life has kind of moved on without him uh you know not super popular not really (laughs) in favor at that time no (laughs) yeah not really a thing um and so it just kind of like withered on the vine um and you know it didn't like even as a sample it wasn't useful in part because we just didn't know anything like we didn't know anybody we didn't know how to do anything you know like i'd worked i'd worked in the independent film industry in in boston and a little bit in new york but that was doing production so there was there was no transition there was no way to kind of like twist that into something useful um and so we just sort of like got jobs and you know i started doing production work and doing whatever i could to you know pay the bills and you know we wrote together we wrote in like another script or like a feature together and then eventually like we just kind of drifted apart and I started writing on my own. And as I was writing, I'm, I'm really bad uh, at the idea. So like when it's less so in comics, that's why I ended up in comics, but you know, the, the kind of like the proper, the proper way to think of script writing uh, in film and TV is that you're writing blueprints, Yeah, right? Your job is to make the most beautiful blueprints in the world. And hopefully those blueprints will get you somewhere, whether that's as a sample or whether that's as a as an outright um, sale. They're still just blueprints. They're never going to be what you expect them to be. And so like sitting down and spending three months of my life crafting blueprints that will never be built was just like the most odious work I could think of coming from theater where it's like, no, no, you just put it up, but you just do it. There's no reason not to do it. Well, and where the the script is sacrosanct. Yeah. You know, we're like, no one's going to get in the way. Yeah. Um, And so I was just, I was really frustrated and I had a neighbor um, who actually got me a job working in production and simultaneously was a huge comic book nerd. And I had drifted off from comics, you know, in the nineties, like when the, the comic that broke me, of the habit uh was x-men number one jim lee's x-men number one oh, I because i that, yeah i did not understand that it was the same comic they released six times so i bought i used all of my pocket money and bought all of them oh no and i read the all... first one and i was like well that was not very good i'm sure this next one will be good and i tore it open and i was like 
well, that's the same comic. And it still wasn't very good. Like tore up my oh, third one. Oh no! And by the end of it, I was like, well, I'm not reading comic books anymore. Cause that is, that was a giant cheat. Um, but you know, he kind of, you know, that was like in 2001, 2002. I mean, that was Bendis and, um, like Bendis doing ultimate Spider-Man and daredevil and, yep. Brubaker and Rucka doing Gotham Central and Detective and Catwoman and you know like you had in uh, BKV doing uh, Y and well that came a little later but yeah it was it was certainly the genesis of that era of yeah yeah you know the really the good quality script writing stuff outweighing uh yeah the sort of the variant cover <laughs> cash grab and when when, when it felt like Vertigo stopped just being Vertigo and started to be everybody. Yeah. You know, like everyone was everyone who was succeeding had that sort of like the same quality that we always thought of as being like a Vertigo comic. Um, and just seeing that and realizing like, oh, like my ideas are not the things that I wanted to do that felt sort of outlandish in mainstream, you know, Hollywood and TV, you know, movie and TV felt less outlandish to do them in comics. Um, and even on like the terrible salary I was pulling, like I could do it like i could afford to publish them yeah um and so i sort of just figured it out like i figured out how to publish like i figured out how to print stuff and how to lay stuff out in indesign and photoshop and i taught myself everything i had a buddy that i worked with who was just for god knows why he took a shine to me and trusted me and had faith in me and he he and i kind of put together a business um and which is you know we self which is why we started self-publishing comics um and like it was really and i think you probably i think you'll, you'll identify with this too <laughs> as you were as you and i were pretty much neck and neck at the time like we were both in the same like around the same parts of our careers uh, like it was it was funny because it was so satisfying to do work and to do it you know freely and to be um able to tell stories the way you wanted to tell them while also a little bit heartbreaking that you're doing it for 600 people <laughs> yes well and often for less than 600 bucks an issue <laughs> yeah exactly um, it was always such a it was always just such a weird it was such a weird way to do things it's so funny actually because my sort of gravitation towards comics at that time came from a similar but quite different angle because my problem was i didn't want to do all the really weird, outrageous stuff that at the time I was seeing in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. I gravitated towards that era because of people like Greg and Ed and uh, Bendis before he went to work for Marvel, doing genre stuff, doing right. murder mysteries and detective stories and horror stories and just straight up genre stuff. And I wanted to do that. I didn't really have much interest in the capes and the punching. Uh, and the lightning bolts and all and lasers out of people's eyes and all that stuff. It's fine. I have no problem with it, but it's never been my main thing that I wanted to do. And so that era of comics attracted me and Oni Press, actually, in particular, who you and I obviously have both written quite a bit for, right. uh, particularly because they were publishing writers like Greg and doing stuff that was just straight genre, but in comics. No, 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 because I'm the same. Like, I it took me a long time to actually do superhero books. Like, I think the first, like, the first thing I did for Marvel was a outlaw kid story, so a western. 
like it took me like they would ask me to pitch stuff and i would pitch like the least useful (laughs) (laughs) the least useful characters you know like john bar i remember john barber being like and who if you could do anything in the world what was it and i was like i would like to do a a mad tinker story where uh it's about one of the awesome Andy robots meeting the uh, uh, Frankenstein's monster, and uh, they have a <laughs> they have a they have a long they have a long conversation about what it's like to not be a man, what it's like to be <laughs> the creation of another man. And he's on the phone. He's like, "Have you thought about I don't know, like Wolverine? Maybe? <laughs> I mean, that might be a little bit easier." It's like I don't understand what's wrong. Like, what's wrong with what I just said? Is that not a thing? I mean, you know, I want to see what that is. That's, those are both characters. Those are both Marvel characters. No, no, that's ironically now, twenty years later, that is a thing, right? You know, totally. that that kind of comic absolutely is a thing. But yeah, you know, I think you were a bit ahead of your time there. No, like, and I, you know, what what ended up happening in writing comics and what got progressively more and more frustrating for me was I found that I was doing exactly what you're saying. I was too I was too mainstream for the indie comics. <laughs> yeah and too indie for the mainstream comics exactly the same as me like i the stuff i was doing was sort of too weird um for you know like for editors and you know the higher-ups at the companies to really get behind um when i was working for them and then when i was sort of like looking for looking at publishers and talking to other places like i always i always kind of got the like well it's very polished and i was like that's good isn't it yeah right (laughs) Like, is that a bad thing? And you know what's what what I found and what what ended up sort of accidentally happening is that I started just I optioned everything. Like, and then part part of that was like we all got to ride the thirty days of night wave, mm-hmm. right? Like after thirty days of night, everybody just started optioning stuff constantly. Um, but like beyond that, I found like just I would option the same. Like I would option. I think I maybe have two things that I've created out of the like 20 titles I've done that haven't been optioned um, to some degree. And like, because somehow like what I ended up doing is like, it's comics, but it's comics that become regular mainstream stuff. Like they're things that people sort of understand the mainstream genre of more so than the, the more than more so than a comics audience. Yeah. Um, And so I almost got dragged away. Like I, I, like I do, I love, I did not love writing superheroes. I certainly did not love my time writing superheroes and working for, working for, you know, DC in particular. Um, but I love those characters and I think those characters are very, very important. Um, you know, the fact that like when I, I wrote a Batman Superman for my mom, uh, for, for, for the first time and I called my mom and, uh, I was talking to my mom and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I just wrote this thing for DC. And she's like, yeah, what was it? I was like, well, it was like a Superman thing. And she's like, oh, Superman, you mean like Clark Kent? And I was like, what the hell, the hell do you know Clark Kent? <laughs> like, where's that come from? <laughs> you know, my parents are South African and they're very like South Africa because of apartheid. They had very little pop culture that made it there. I mean, they didn't have color TV until like the late seventies. You know, so like they didn't have that stuff and you know, she knows it, you know? And I, like I was on the, while talking to her, I was like, who's, um, who's the kid who hangs out with them? And she's like, Jimmy Olsen? Wow. <laughs> and who's, who's, who's Superman's girlfriend? Lois Lane. I was like, is that from seeing the movie? She's like, no, I never saw the movie. It's just like, it's so ingrained in pop culture. And because of that, like you can do stuff with those characters. You have the opportunity to do stuff with those characters that you can't do with anything else because 
so much of them is sort of known by heart by everybody on the planet um, that you can say things that you can't say with anyone else because they come sort of burdened with that icon status in such an interesting kind of cool way. Um, but at the same time, like the thing, like the number one note I would get when I was working in DC is you write them like they're too iconic. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Like I, they are, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but like there's literally millions and millions and millions of people walking around wearing Batman shirts everywhere. Like yep. that's iconic. People just know Batman. They don't want, they don't need to know all the tiny, tiny details. They know Batman is Bruce Wayne. So why don't we start there you know, and go from there? You said earlier that you almost got dragged away at that point, but I mean, eventually you did get dragged away. And as you said, most of your work in recent years has now been in TV. How did you make that leap? Was that because of, you know, through contacts that you've made from having so much of your stuff optioned? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. So like, uh, it was sort of like a, a, a bunch of like a confluence of events. Um, so part of it was because I'd optioned so much stuff. Um, what I got to see because I was optioning stuff, but not adapting it. So I would sell stuff. Someone else would adapt it. And uniformly because so much of my, my stuff had uh, like, I believe in taking sort of like the, the, if you were to like summarize myself, like what I try to do is I take, genre like genre ideas big fat genre ideas but then i try to execute them with like like an artistic flourish of some sort um so the like the the easiest example is probably elks run so my my first book is it's the story of a small town cut off from the outside world where uh the kids realize that their parents are uh essentially militiamen um, and the kids are like, had no idea. The kids try to make a run for it and the parents are hunting the kids. The kids are trying to escape using the, the skills that the parents taught them. So cool. It's like a big, got it. It's an action movie. Totally get what it is. It's, you know, it's like the great escape meets, um, meets, um, uh, Red Dawn. Mm -hmm. But the way the book is executed is Rashomon. So yeah. every chapter is from a different character's point of view. As you go through it, you're sort of like, you're seeing how, you know, the main character is the hero, but then his dad, who's the bad guy, also kind of the hero. And then, you know, his mom, who's sort of torn between the temp, born between them, she's kind of the hero. But then the neighbor who sort of lets everything happen, he's the hero. Like you, you get to see everyone's point of view. So in the like five times we optioned that book, it's always the first thing to go is that, is the point of view stuff. Oh no. <laughs> Everyone, like every single version. And it doesn't work. Like it all just yeah, kind of no, falls that's, apart. Yeah. <laughs> you can't and, do that. <laughs> and I would sit in, like, I would talk to screenwriters. I would sit in development meetings. Like I would talk to people and I would say like, no, you can't. Like if you take it out, it doesn't work because you're just telling like a jingoist, boring story. Like we get it. Like you're, you're telling a jingoist story from the other side, which is even weirder. Yeah. Right. Like you're telling it as like this sort of odd like the kids are good. Everyone else is bad. And the fact is that's not what the book is about. The book is about this idea that we, as kids, we have simplistic views of our parents and these kids get a more complicated view of their parents. But what makes it interesting is that in fact, we always have more complicated views of our parents and our parents always have more complicated views of us. 
Like that is, that is literally what the book is about. And the fact that it has this action movie sort of hook to it is literally just that it's just a hook to let you actually explore what's interesting about it. Yeah. I mean, talk about only seeing the surface. Yeah. And like that. So I would see that happen and I'm like literally almost every one of my projects as it would get set up and then they would die. Like they wouldn't go, they wouldn't move forward at all because they would lose the thing that made them special. And so I, I got to a point and it was when I was, you know, I was working pretty solidly doing work for hire. Um, and I think I was probably working in a video game company at the time. So I was running, you know, I was like earning enough money or as much, as much money as you can doing that stuff. And, um, I told, you know, my agent, my manager, I said like, yeah, we're done. Like we're not optioning stuff anymore. And, you know, the rule became, I don't option stuff that I'm not adapting. Yeah. Because if someone's going to, someone's going to screw up my work, uh, I'm going to do it and I'm going to get paid for it. Like, <laughs> let me screw it up first and then someone else can come in and do whatever they want. But I'm going to get first crack because it's, it's pointless. Like you're hiring people who have less experience than me to, they're hiring people who have less experience than me to do a worse job <laughs> than I would likely do. Um, and so that just became, that became the blanket rule. Um, and, you know, part of that was sitting down with, you know, the agency's TV team and the feature team and sort of like, these are the things to make that a reality. These are the things you have to do. Um, and a lot of that, like the hardest, the hardest part and the part that took the longest for me, because again, you know, I think I didn't understand writing a spec, but it was write a spec. And so I worked massively hard writing just a spec tv pilot um and like it wasn't it wasn't easy it it's not it's not how i tell stories naturally like the idea of like no no like i need to know what's going to happen in five years like i need to have a basic understanding of where the story's going but at the end of the day like that's not what a pilot is a pilot is the flashiest most you know expressive emotionally laden like shortcut version of the story that you're telling yeah um and finally, you know, after doing that for long enough, like I had a really good sample. Um, and then in the midst of all that, we'd also, uh, Joe Infernari and I had, had done The Bunker, um, which I'd sell, which we'd self-published. Um, and then Oni eventually picked it up also. Um, yeah. And in self-publishing it, just we public, we did a short, short chapters that were like, you know, 10, essentially like 20 half pages or so 10 pages. Um, and there was a bidding war for them and it just became, it, again, it was part of the rules. Like I said, like, I'm not, I told Joe, like, I'm not selling it unless I'm adapting it. Like, that's just where we are. And Joe was fine. I told him exactly what I just said. I just said all the reasons why and that, you know, like I, you know, he'd been getting paid the whole time he was doing it and I was getting zero and outputting money because I was, you know, paying to host it and do all that stuff. Um, and you know, he, he very graciously, you know, went with me on it. And, um, so that got me sort of my first gig, like getting properly paid to write a pilot and was adapting my own work. Um, and you know, we didn't sell it, but it went really well. Like it was a great experience. And I wrote a script that was very well liked. Um, and combining that with having a sample that was useful and it's it's funny, like the you know the the hilarious part is that you know everyone says that it's luck, and like it it is, it's definitely luck. Like the 
So the first actual staff TV job I had was on a show called Chicago Med, which is a Dick Wolf show, which if you've seen them, you would not be like, you know, Josh is going to nail it on this show. <laughs> um, the reason that I got hired is um, they so people don't write medical pilots. They, people just don't write medical specs because it's a weird thing to do. It's a lot of work. Um, I love medical shows. Like I love St. Elsewhere is, I think, the greatest TV show of all time. Um, it's so good. It's um, Tom Fontana, who would go on to create Oz and work on Homicide, mm-hmm. um, who's just one of the best, most important writers in the history of television. It's actually his first job. He came out here to spec uh, or to do a freelance script for St. Elsewhere and then never went home. Like, just couldn't leave because he became so essential to the team. Um, and it's the show is so groundbreaking and so smart and so cool. And because of that, like, I've always just had an obsession with, like, what is my saying elsewhere? Like, what would I do if I had the ability to do that show? And so, you know, that's what my spec was. So when I went in for the meeting, I was still sort of, like, shocked that they'd want me on this, like, soapy, like, semi-medical medical show. Mm-hmm. Um, and what uh, what became clear when I was reading it was, you know, the show specifically uh, it started all like Oliver Platt was one of the main stars and Oliver Platt pay, played a psychiatrist who's sort of like a grumpy, you know, ruffled, like not, you know, doesn't play by the rules kind of <laughs> like one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a loose cannon. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, like, so like, as I was very, all you know, like very Oliver Saxy, you know, um, so I was sitting in the meeting with our show, with the showrunner and like, we're talking about it. And I said, you know, my dad's a, my dad's a forensic psychiatrist. And showrunner goes, yeah, I know. You know what you do? And he goes, yeah, it's on your bio. No, no. He's like, yeah, why do you think you're here? <laughs> and that was a moment of being like, oh, so they had my sample. They had a psychiatrist character on the show and they saw in my bio that I have a psychiatrist for a father. Ergo, ipso facto, right? Like, that's why I'm here. And, you know, like, look, I got the job because I was charming enough in the meeting and had a good enough sample that they wanted me. But the, like just having that stuff and having that background and having sort of like, you know, my brother's also my brother's a surgeon. Like I had all this stuff sort of around me that gave me like just enough knowledge and just enough access to be helpful that it made sense for them to take a risk on hiring me. Yeah, I've made this point several times that you're right. Of course, there's luck involved and, you know, fortuitous timing, but all that can do is open doors for you you've still yeah. got to then actually turn up and do the work. Yeah. And it's, it's not, you know, but the thing is, is once you get into that room, none of it really matters anymore because you're not, it's not like you're going to get in the room and only talk about the character that you are hired to have expertise on. Right. You know, you still have to work your, your butt off um, and be as good as everyone else. And, you know, you're, you're working with people who've worked on shows that you loved you know, shows that mean something to you and show people who have just like amazing, you know, our, our showrunner, the original showrunner on Chicago med was, uh, you know, like it sounds again, it sounds hilarious when you say it out loud. He created, or he worked on Hercules and, uh, Xena, which is weird that he also was the first <laughs> showrunner on Chicago med, but like he, you know, he works on these shows that are like 
amazing that have these great, you know, places in pop culture history. And your job is to like, yes, to help him, you know, make his vision, but it's also to tell him when he's wrong, you know, to be able to say to somebody like, yeah, it's not like, I think that doesn't work. And that's really hard to do, you know, like it's not easy. And that only comes from just, you know, knowing, um, you know, knowing how to do the job and having faith and confidence and actually having, you know, the lifetime of experience that I got doing everything else Mm. that sort of led me to standing right there. So you think all that prior experience of kind of, I don't want to say following your bliss, but, you know, doing your own thing and doing it in a very unique way uh, and having success with it, you think that helped you, you know, give you confidence when you stepped into those writer's rooms? Yeah. You know, the thing that comics gives you, it's interesting because I have this conversation a lot, right? Because I get lots of lots of comic people who want to transition. And then I get lots of executives or showrunners who want to talk to me about, who want to talk to me about comic people who want to transition <laughs> or comic people who are selling, you know, they're selling their book and they want to, um, they want to work on the show. And so they'll sort of like come to ask me, you know, either side will come to ask me, you know, what do I think? You know, the thing that you get when you get a comics person is somebody who's been doing the work entirely by themselves. Right. Like what we do as comic book writers, even even with the best editor in the world, specifically in in creator owned, even with the the absolute and, you know, like like having the book I think of is when I did the life after at Oni, like I had, I had Ari Yarwood editing us and, and she was just a ball breaker. Like she was amazing. Like Jesus, she was a great editor. But at the end of the day, it was still like we had to, I had to generate story. Like I had to generate story. It had to be profound and precise. And like, it had to be a thing that moved me and, you know, Gabo, our artist and like that, that mattered. And that was me alone in a room figuring it out. You never do that on a TV show. No. And if you are doing that on a TV show, there's something wrong. Because especially at the beginning, at the beginning, like a staff writer should never is never left alone to figure things out. You always have support. So having that makes it easier to some degree. The part that's harder, um, sort of the flip side of that coin, is that TV is not um, yours. Yeah. You know, like it's it's hard. And look, I do it constantly. Like I have the personality where I just, I, I see what I see is right and that's it. And it's hard for me. To, it's hard for me not to be like, whatever dummy, you don't want to do what I want, <laughs> go to hell. Um, but you learn to, you know, like, and you learn to just sort of, you serve at the showrunner's pleasure. Um, and the best you can do again is sort of flag problem areas or problems that you see. And then you leave it to the showrunner to decide. Um, and I think, you know, and then even beyond that, it's drafting. Like maybe I'm, I like whenever I say it, I'm always ashamed. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm alone in it. But like I didn't really draft, like not properly, because there wasn't time. Like my my DC stuff, like when I was doing the DC books, like they just had to get done. There wasn't time to sit there and like let me start over from scratch. <laughs> like I didn't get paid enough to sit down and just restart. Whereas on TV, like I've rebroken stuff. Like you just take the outline apart and start over because mm. it's wrong and you're getting paid to be there and you're getting paid to help 
you know, someone else who has that happen or, you know, even, you know, like the last show that I was on, you know, we, you know, we break, we'd spend a week and a half or so breaking the episode. Then we would get, you know, an outline would come in another week and a half later. And then the whole room gets together and we talk about the outline. And then after that conversation, the outline gets rewritten and it can be a substantial rewrite. And that goes to the studio and then it goes to the network and then it comes back and then you get a script and then the script goes to the room and the room goes through the script and gives substantial notes. And it becomes, again, it's another moment of like, well, how substantial do we need to do? Like, do we need to actually take this apart or not? And there's always the question of like, do we, do we go back to ground? Like, do we need to completely rethink this? Because, you know, we have to, because we're spending millions of dollars. Yeah. We're spending so much money. Whereas like, we just don't, in comics, you just don't think about it. Like, it's just not, it's just not a thing. Um, And so I think like in the stories that I've heard from people, and again, this is people who've worked in TV from comics and people who've employed people from comics in TV is that people don't like, they don't like drafting. They don't want to draft. They don't like taking notes. But the fact is like, nobody likes taking notes. Notes no. suck. <laughs> um, you know, like you'll notice, especially now with zoom, it's, it's funny because everyone wants to do, everyone wants to do notes with, uh, with video. And it's like, no, please God, I don't want you to see what I'm thinking when you're giving me yeah. those notes. <laughs> so the last thing in the world is I want you to see my face. Cause Jesus, like you, if you saw the faces that I was pulling while you're doing this and while I'm muting the phone and shrieking, I don't like, no, please don't look at me. This is terrible. You know, that's the like, but that is the, that is sort of the price. And you know, that's what the money's for. Yeah. Like that's why you get paid so much more money is that you're not writing your show. You're writing your showrunner show. And to some degree, the showrunner isn't writing their show. They're writing the network show. Right. They're writing it for the network. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the great advantage, disadvantage, comedy and tragedy of comics, isn't it? Is that you have that freedom. You know, you can be working on, as you said, an iconic property like Batman or Superman or something, and yet you still have an enormous amount of freedom, of authorial freedom and autonomy compared to almost any other, uh, you know, modern media job, certainly working in TV or even film. Yeah. But yeah, you don't get paid it, as much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even writing Superman or something, you don't get paid anywhere near as much as you would working on you know, just sort of, I don't know, a daytime soap or something. It's, uh, it's well, like, somebody, the- and people want to switch. Like it's, it's again, I don't know if it's just because I'm in TV now. And so I get lots of questions about it, but like, it seems like people are still, you know, people are chomping at the bit to switch over. And you know, the, the reality is like the numbers might have changed recently, but I know like two, three years ago, it was, there's more people playing professional basketball in the U S than there are working television writers. Yeah. Yeah. That's the stat that Craig Mazin always pulls out on yeah. the script notes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's true. Like when, you know, I always like, you know, I have an Emmy nomination. I got nominated for, you know, book awards and stuff. I'm a New York times bestseller and I get into rooms and I'm just like, I don't know why the hell I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> like these are amazing people. <laughs> like, these people are so much smarter than me. You know, these people have like just great, just great resumes. And, you know, and then I talk and I like, when I'm swallowing air in the room, I just feel like, like I should probably not talk, you know, but at the same time, like it's my job to talk. Yeah. 
you know, like I, I have to, cause that's what I'm paid to do. And like you, you, it's a very strange, um, it's like a, it's a very strange way to sort of <laughs> like prioritize your brain of like understanding your importance, but also underplaying your importance while also trying to like get your point across while also not trying too hard to get your point across. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you mentioned this, the, the art of collaboration, if you like, which we don't really have to do so much in comics. Obviously we collaborate in comics with our artists and stuff, but in terms of being the author and you know, writing the script, that's not so much a thing. It's not very common, but you also have worked in video games and you said you worked for a game studio for a while. Did that not help you? you know, sort of get over that issue of not being the ultimate authority on uh, story and narrative? Because that's, you know, in, in games, it's almost unheard of for the writer to have that kind of authority and control. It's funny, you know, like it, it does, but it's also, it's almost the other way, right? Like it becomes, you have so little to do with what happens. It feels like you're paid, like it felt like wallpaper more than anything. Right. You know? Because like it really was just like I was just there to I, like the the games I worked on were, were funny, which again if you look at my like my my books, I don't know why <laughs> yeah, you might go there. like really really <laughs> yeah um like I've done funny books don't get me wrong but like you know like yeah it's weird okay I'll do it um but so like a lot of it was writing jokes or like giving them this is what the voice would sound like or writing promos and stuff like that um. But even doing like, cause I did a lot of like design documents for them where I built the, you know, built building worlds out and, you know, helping to kind of like trim stuff together. Mm -hmm. It felt so work for hire and so separate that it felt like even more, it felt even more disparate. Um, and the other, the other thing I've found in video games that I find really interesting and I'll never forget it. Cause I was like in the middle, when did I start there? I must've been, I'm trying to think how it, correlates to my other work i just remember i remember like the first day that i got there at this particular studio and and i was like sitting in the room and they were sort of like briefing me on this is how the thing works and i was like yeah see here narratively here what here's why that doesn't work and i start like explaining it to them and i see them like like i see the like the creative the creative lead sort of like get ready to argue and then he goes stopped and he sort of thinks for a second then he goes you are an expert and we're paying you a lot of money to be an expert. So I suppose you're probably right. Okay. We'll do that instead. And I was like, what just happened? Wow. That was amazing. That I don't, so good. I don't know a games writer in the industry who has a story like that. You, you, that's incredible. I'm a unicorn. It turns out, yeah. it turns out the one time. <laughs> it's like the... <laughs> yeah. It's a weird, you know, like it's, and again, you know, like it's a weird, it's also hard to, it's hard to sort of like to narrow stuff down. Like my, there's, you know, like there's just as many stories of people at DC who had a great time as you have my story where it was like sure, yeah. literally marching through hell, you know, like it's, everyone has just a different experience where they work. Um, You know, I've even had, I've had showrunners who are nightmares who other people are like, really? They're great. I love them. They're so fantastic. Um. And then you realize that it's, it's so much of it is, you know, like the specific moment, the specific relationship, like yeah. where people land in your, in their lives. And it's hard, you know, the, the, probably the, the smartest thing that has been ever said to me, like the wisest thing. Um, and I, uh, 
if, if only Stephen Wacker was listening, he would be like, damn straight. I was the wisest. <laughs> Stephen Wacker once said to me, um, we like, uh, what's the background? So the background of the story is that I, uh, I'm friends with a bunch of guys who were in Wacker's office when he was at, uh, at Marvel mm-hmm. in the Spider-Man office. And, um, you know, they all were like pushing for me to do more work there. And so, uh, Mark Wade put me in touch and said, you know, sent me a meeting with him at, at a convention. And, uh, so I go into the meeting and I sit down and introduce myself and he's like, yeah, yeah what, what do you need to do? What do you do? And I'm like, well, so I wrote this and this. And he's like, uh, uh-huh. I'm like, uh, and then he sees me in my bag and I do, um, I do my, like, uh, my young ones rip off book. I do punks. And oh yeah, I forgot like, about punk. He's like, he's like, oh, you do that? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, oh, this book's great. And I was like, ah, I'm in. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm like, thanks, man. I'm really glad you like it. And he's like, yeah, but like, what do you need me for? And I was like, what? And he goes, I mean, what, what, like, what could you possibly want me for? Like, you have that book. It's great. Go do that. And I was like, well, it doesn't make any money. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> He goes, oh, so you're just here to make money. I got it. I was like, what? <laughs> What's happening right now? <laughs> it was just very weird. It was a very weird meeting. I get it. So like meeting ends Steve's awkwardly. a very weird man. And I say that with it, a lot of love because he employed me for two years at Marvel. But, he, you know, I think he would be the first to admit man. he's a bit of a strange man. <laughs> but so, you know, meeting ends weird. I go to Mark. Mark's like, oh, how's your meeting with Wacker? And I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. It was so weird. And he's like, oh, for God's sake. All right, I'll talk to him. Um. <laughs> It's like time goes by and I get an email from him and I'm going to be in New York. And he's like, Hey, I want to meet you for breakfast. And, uh, so we sit down for breakfast and he's like, first of all, I want to be clear. I'm hiring you for something before I say what I'm about to say. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, do you know how much I think about you when you're not sitting directly in front of me? And I went, uh, not at all. And he goes, uh-huh. Do you want to know how much I think about anybody at all who isn't my family when they're not on fire directly in front of me? Not at all. He's like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, that's the truth. He's like, every person in the world who's busy, when they give you attention of any kind, it's because you're solving a problem or you're creating a problem. So you decide. Because otherwise, you're invisible. So. You can tell Mark I was mean to you because I was mean to you. And that was a dick move. <laughs> but the fact is like, yeah, I don't care. So I'm here to hire you. Do you want to work for me or what? <laughs> and I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That sounds like true. Yeah. <laughs> but, that's, but it's hundred percent true. And it's a thing that like you, I've come to realize that like, even just again, like, you know, I get like a thousand emails a day, you know, even like just distribution from the show that I just wrapped there's we get 150 texts texts a day we get slacks we get 100 plus slacks a day we get another you know 50 plus emails a day that i have to look at and like when i get emails from somebody i met once like it's hard like i don't not it's not that i don't want to respond it's just like that's can't be a priority yeah um and learning like learning that and learning how to sort of like choose your moments and choose choose when to actually like when those moments are to call them and when to use them and when to when to like interact appropriately like i think it's such a huge part 
that again, like none of us got, none of us get taught it. I think it's, there's some people who are just really good at it. Um, but it's one of those things that I just, I wish, I wish when I was younger, someone had told me <laughs> like, just pay to, they don't pay attention to you because they don't, can't use you for anything. So just ignore it. Well, it's like yeah. the old adage about, uh, I say the old adage, I, I don't know whether it's really that, but it's like the stories I hear quite frequently from people, uh, especially in LA, you know, people who've had good careers, um, so often turn out to have started that career by solving a problem for someone, by mm -hmm. being the junior staff writer that nobody notices, that nobody cares about, who solves a big problem for a showrunner or an exec. And that turns out to be the thing that then, you know, gets them another job and another job. And that's what propels them because they were at that moment able to solve a problem rather than just pointing the problem out. They could say, right. and here's how you fix it. And look, that's, you know, the other, the, you know, the other thing about it is, you know, I had another, I worked on another show where, you know, the boss was just, he's very, was very uninterested in help. Like he didn't want, like I, you know, had he had his brothers, I don't know that he'd have a staff at all, but you know, you're sort of required to, they yeah. want you to have a staff. <laughs> There's a lot of shows to produce. You need, you have to produce a lot of episodes. You need a staff. Um, and so, you know, we would sit at the office, like we just wouldn't do anything. And I can't, like, it drives me insane. Like I just can't do it. And I'm also, I'm one of those people who like, I can't, I can't take your money and not provide service. Yeah. You know, like I can't take your money and then like go do something else because why not? Um, like, it's just not, it's not how my brain functions. Like, I feel so guilty that I can't actually accomplish anything. Um, and so I would like, you know, help other people. Like I would just go around and, you know, help the other, the younger writers, or I would help the writers above me who were doing stuff. Like I was just trying to be helpful. Um, and like at the end of the season, when the show was done, like I was told that I was a troublemaker. <laughs> I was like, for what? He's like, well, you're always going around helping people. And I was like, mm and he's like well, i mean who asked you to and i was like i mean that's my job isn't it you're right isn't that why i'm hired <laughs> yeah, and like and that's the thing is like it's funny because i think about it i think about it all the time because it's one of those things of like so is the solution to not help everybody because sure doesn't seem like it like it seems like there it seems like you know that's just a person you can't please yeah and the best thing you can do is just be effective and and like that that is like every person I've worked with, like as I've been on more and more shows and met more and more people, like the people who show up and work their butts off, those are all people I'd hire again in a, in a heartbeat. Like if I was in a position to hire people, I know exactly who I'd hire based on how I, how they were when I worked with them. Yeah. And it has so much less to do with how good or bad a writer they are than it does with how good they are at being supportive and getting the work done well and especially because, in tv because there are so many of you there that you know the kind of the aggregate quality is yeah. will override the the mediocrity or genius of any one particular writer yeah and like and to some degree you know the, there's the story about vince gilligan that is sort of the like i wish they'd used it as the mantra but like you know his story was that on the first day of the show of breaking bad he essentially told everybody you know if you fail i want you to understand that you didn't fail i failed i failed to teach you yeah so you don't need to worry about getting fired like we all need to worry about getting canceled we don't need to worry about getting fired 
um, because it's my job to teach you how to write my show. And when you like having worked on so many shows now, like it really is, it's such a like refreshing way to think about it and helpful because it's a crushing job. Like I've watched, you watch showrunners, no matter how experienced they are, you watch them just get ground down by the level of work. And so much of it is because they take so much of it on their backs. Um, and look, it's a job for a control freak. Like it's just a job you have when you, you have to have like the confidence and the, you know, borderline personality that requires to think you're smarter than everybody else around you and make these decisions that cost millions and millions of dollars. So like, it's, it's sort of inherent. Um, it's inherent to the job, you know? Yeah. Uh, but as you say, it's even so, it is the sort of job that yeah can uh, bring a lot of pressure and you're right sort of grind people down but that's good to know that you know there are some even some of the bigger successes out there are the people who are willing to take responsibility i mean i've you know without going into details i've been in writers teams where that has not been the case where the sort of head person has not been, wanted to take that responsibility and i always try to do that if i'm in that position um but as you say it's it can be tough you know there's a lot of pressure it's all, you know, it's always like, you know, I remember <laughs> on set for something and the short and I are good friends, um, but he's a huge pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> and we had, we had an actor who was complaining, he was complaining about a line and it was a joke. It was like, it's this gallows, like a gallows joke. It's a really like heavy scene and it ends on like, it ends on a punchline just to like lighten the mood slightly. And you know, so we're on set and he's sort of arguing with me about why this line doesn't work. And I was like thinking about it. And I was reading it and I was like, I don't think I wrote that. Like, I think the showrunner wrote that feels like doesn't feel like a me joke. And I said to him, I was like, yeah, like, can we just do it? And then I'll like, if it doesn't work, it'll get cut. And he's like, no, because you're just going to use it. And I was like, well, yeah, because I think, you know, a showrunner wrote it. And he's like, so you're telling me I have to do it because the showrunner did it. I was like, I'm telling you you have to do it because it's in the script. Like, that's why you have to do it. He's like, you're saying the showrunner wrote it. I said, well, yeah, probably. And so we're standing there and then the showrunner walks up, like as we're filming it, the showrunner walks up and he goes, why is he, uh, why is he killing that joke so badly? And I was like, well, he, you know, he didn't want to do it, you know, and I told him he had to. And he's like, why didn't you cut it? I was like, well, cause you know, you wrote it. And he's like, I didn't wrote it. I didn't write that. You wrote that. <laughs> I was like, no, I was pretty sure you wrote that. He's like, no, you wrote it. You hundred percent wrote it. It's your fault. <laughs> And I was like, all right, well, I told him you wrote it. And he's like, oh, great. So you just blame me for anything that's not good. And I was like, first of all, it's good. <laughs> but <laughs> you're absolutely right. So we call cut. They go out to their dressing rooms. And I'm like, come on, let's go. And I took the showrunner and I walked into the actor's dressing room. And I said, hey, man, I just want you to know, I said that, you know, showrunner wrote it. I actually wrote it. So that's that's my bad. I'm sorry you didn't like it. We should have, I should have worked with you to find something better. I was just, in my head, I was pretty sure I didn't write it. But I apologize. And the showrunner was like, why the hell did you do that? And I was like, because I don't want to lie to people. Like, I think it's super important to take responsibility and like why it matters. And like that actor who's a pain in the butt was less of a pain in the butt the rest of the time. Right. Because I talked to him like, again, it's like you take responsibility and you treat them like a person. Um, And so and so many people don't get treated like people. Um up and down and i I, that's not just tv and film like that's that's i think in comics it happens constantly you know yeah all right let's start to uh wrap this up then so when you what part is it that you 
especially I'm thinking TV now, because there are so many, as you say, so many sort of stages to the writing process. What are the parts that you really enjoy writing? And by that, I mean, you know, content or a stage in the writing process. Um, I love making stuff. Like I love production. Uh, I have like, I have a ton of production background, like doing just straight production, not, not creative. So getting to do, getting to use like my actual physical production knowledge and combine that with creative, being able to like actually see the scene and know as it's being shot, how things are going to cut together and how things are going to work and how that impacts the story and how that impacts the dialogue. Like that part of it is so satisfying. Like it's really, it feels great. Um, you know, it's, it's like probably my favorite part. I, I like, um, I mean, I like all of it. It, it can be, you know, the part of me that I have to turn off is the, is that, like solitude the solitude of the comics writer mm-hmm. um so it can be frustrating for me when i'm at the like in the the story breaking point but once i get past that and i'm in the writing point ironically i love having neighbors you know like when you're not in the middle of a pandemic and you're in a hallway with you know eight other writers you really like and really respect who all know exactly what you're writing so it's not just calling your friend and being like, hey, so I'm working on this this scene. Like, have you well, you haven't read them because there's three issues between <laughs> what you're what you might have read, maybe, and where I am now. But it's literally like you guys know exactly what I'm writing because you were in the room when we broke it. I can't get this scene to work. What would you do? And to get like instant feedback like that from somebody who is just as knowledgeable as you on what you're writing is so magical. And it's like the proof positive of how, like, what is great about the system of like why, you know, the fact that all these, uh, all the networks are saving all this money by not getting physical spaces for rooms and why everyone is like a little bit terrified that that's going to stick because it's, it's like this very, uh, it's the alchemy, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's, it's hard. There's no, there's no, there's no like perceivable difference because of it other than it feels better. Because we all talk like, you know, again, yeah. like we all talk to each other, like the staff of this again, like the show ended two weeks ago, probably. And we still text each other a ton and it's individual texts and it's group texts and it's questions and it's all this stuff. And like, we're not getting paid to work. We just all like each other and we all want to help each other and like talk about other stuff. And like, cause you build these, you build like a family relationship with, with the staff and a good staff. You build a family relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I, I know what you mean, it's the virtual thing, it just isn't the same. I'm running a room for a video game at the moment, and it's great, and I'm working with great people, and we're all having fun, but it is not the same as being in the same location together and being able, as you say, to just knock on somebody's door and say, okay, I'm having trouble with this, what do you reckon? Yeah. All right, so what, uh, I mean, conversely, the next question is, what parts do you dread doing? What do you dread coming to write? And it sounds like that, like the breaking part of... TV anyway is the hardest for you then. I mean it it depends like so I I tend to again like just because of the background like I tend to like to come into the break like 70% broken. Like I like to know this is pretty much the story this is where the this is where the act breaks are. Um when you get on certain shows so even like the show like the show I'm on right now or was just on um 
it's you know it's an adaptation of something so that so the thing we're adapting has like a pretty clear arc for what the episodes are going to be it's not too hard to figure it out Mm -hmm. um and like so you you know so i kind of went in when it was when we got to my episode which i read the second episode of the show like i pretty much knew like this is probably what the shape is going to be and so I came in with like when I was told you're writing this episode, we they, we started breaking it as a room and then it was can you spend the weekend sort of cleaning it up and figuring out where else you want your breaks. Um, And so, you know, I came back in on on Monday with like the whole episode broken and sort of here's pretty much what I would do. Um, But then, you know, my boss likes to essentially take apart every piece and make sure they work. So it's a bit of like, well, yeah, you really broke it. Like <laughs> It's really broken instead of just like lightly broken. And so kind of like going back through stuff again, it's the draft, like it's the drafting thing. It's so hard to do because mm-hmm. we're so, I'm just so, again, this is doing for like seven years now and it's still hard to get over the, like, it's not finished. It's not finished. It's not finished. It's not finished. And it really is that like learning that like, it's just words on paper, you know, just words on a screen or words on a dry erase board. Um, So like going through, breaking specifically because you're constantly sort of like looping back um and you're you're trying when you're trying to lead that room you end up like the hierarchies can get weird it's really but again it's so much about the personalities of the room that when you have a really well well run well oiled room like it's it can be a joy because you just bang straight through the stories you know what the stories are they trust the person who's breaking them or they trust you when you're breaking and you just power through it or it can be like weeks and weeks of suffering mm-hmm. um and there's never there's no you never have a clue until you're actually standing there in front of everyone which one it's going to be <laughs> all right and then finally what is something that you have read or watched recently where the writing really impressed you and why i think it's there's that episode of the crown where is that one specific episode where uh do you watch it i i do not know is it like, is it hated in the UK? No, no. I think most people are watching it. I just don't really have any interest in it myself. I didn't think I'd have interest in it. And man, do I have interest in it. it turns out. <laughs> um, no, it's funny because I'm not like, you know, my, again, my parents are South African. So like my mom growing up, my mom was obsessed with it all because it was such a, like, it was such a part of her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there's a, there's a scene in this last season, there's a whole episode, which is just the queen telling everybody off. <laughs> and it's and it's like her like diana goes to see her to sort of like beg her for help um and she diana uh, like diana like essentially hugs her and it just cracks her <laughs> like it just cracks the queen and the queen just tears her apart and then she tears uh she tears uh the sister apart her sister apart and then she tears charles like just into pieces and she does it it's it's certainly performance driven as well, but the the writing of somebody writing a character who is so um so tightly wound and so uh put together like unleashing without being able to actually unleash mm-hmm. is like first of all that that those scenes always always work. Like that's that's just a way that's like such an easy it's like a gimme whenever you do one of those. But it works so well because you're just waiting for like you've just been waiting for her (laughs) to finally be like all right you people are stupid i can't take it anymore (laughs) well josh where can people find you online 
I'm on Twitter at Josh Fialgov, um, and Instagram at the same. And then I do a podcast. My wife had made, told me I have to promote a podcast. We do a podcast, my wife and my daughter and I, um, called little miss movies where we make our 10 year old daughter watch classic movies, um, of all shapes and sizes and talk about them. And, uh, her favorite movie thus far has been citizen Kane. Wow. Which is weird, but man, does she love it? Um, so, and that's little miss movies. Uh, I think it's little, little miss movies on, uh, Instagram and Twitter. And if you search for the little miss movies podcast on your favorite podcasting service, you will find it. It is, uh, I think it's delightful, uh, but it might just be cause she's my kid. It's very hard. To say. <laughs> well, you know, a little of both. <laughs> it's true. We did, um, we did interstellar and, uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> she was, she was like, this is just depressing because it's just a movie about how we're idiots. I was like, no, honey, but it's about how we're going to evolve to not be idiots. She's like, yeah, but how do we evolve to be not idiots if we're just idiots? <laughs> and I was like, fair enough. I'm just impressed <laughs> that a 10 year old managed to sit through Interstellar. Good Lord. She loved it. I took her to 2001 twice. Wow. She didn't like the monkeys. She didn't like the monkeys and she didn't like the, the, like the, the, the Starfield part at the end when he's going through the when he's going through the, to the hotel yeah. she, that metal chunk she really likes, <laughs> so she suffered through the rest. Oh wow! All right, Josh, thank you so much for going on the show. Thank you for having me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a Seven RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time. It reminds, there's a scene in uh, there's a scene in Gilmore Girls. Uh, that's right. I'm gonna talk about Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls, best TV show of the past thirty years, probably twenty years. Um, there's an episode of Gilmore Girls that I think is like they do the same thing, but it's it's possibly like the best 10 minutes of TV of all time um, where that's uh, the the Gilmore Girls is uh, Lauren Graham plays. Uh, she was a teenager when she had her daughter um, and ran away from home. And so now she's 32. Her daughter is 16. She's been forced to like reconcile with her parents to pay for school. Her parents never really got over the embarrassment of it all. So they're having dinner at home and uh, they're having dinner with the, the father of her daughter with her, with his family who have had like no contact with the daughter whatsoever. And when they're sitting there, like they're sort of like, like doing everything very politely. And then, you know, the, the other grandfather just sort of explodes about like, what are we doing? This is a sham. Like, why would we even do this? Like your daughter ruined our son's life and everything is garbage. And we're just going to pretend that this little girl makes everything worthwhile. And then Edward Herman, who plays the dad, just stands up and just delivers this like crushing, like, how dare you walk into my house and talk about my daughter? My daughter's amazing. My daughter's amazing. My daughter is special. And my grandchild is like one of the most amazing women on this planet. How dare you get out of my house right now? And it's this like, whoa, like, oh, man, I've been waiting <laughs> for this the whole time. This is amazing. He's super dad. And then after that scene, we cut to it's him sitting in his study like alone. And Lauren Graham's character like knocks on the door and comes in and says like that. I want you to know how much that meant to me. Like I really, and he goes, he doesn't even look up and he just goes, do you know how much you embarrassed your mother and me? Oh, like all we did 
was try to make your life better and you ruined it. You will never understand what you did to us, how you lost our friends, how we lost our standing. Everything you did is unforgivable. Don't you ever think anything else? And it's like, oh God, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> that's so salty. It's, and it's, again, it's that same thing of just like, it's so crushing. It's somebody who you're like, you're just expecting so much from, like you get that like glimpse of like, someone's going to be a straight shooter and someone's going to be good. Someone being good and then understanding like, oh no, there's something going on underneath. Like, there's something so much more complicated underneath. <laughs> so yeah, so those two scenes, they're like the same, except one has the queen and Charles. 